In the church today, one of the most controversial questions is obviously about Pope Francis. Well, one thing that just happened was Archbishop Vigano has come out with a statement openly questioning the resignation of Pope Benedict. Now, that's a huge thing, because what would that mean? It would mean that if his resignation wasn't valid, the whole papacy of Francis would be not only in question, maybe totally invalid. So these are there's huge implications here. We have with us an expert in this. In fact, I think the world's foremost expert in it. His name is Dr. Maza. You're going to want to stay tuned. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Dr. Mazza, thank you for being with us. Oh, it's a privilege. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, Father and the Son, Son, and of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Ghost. Amen. Amen. So, uh, if I may call you Ed. Please. So, Ed, I mean, this is hugely controversial. You are a noted professor. You are an academician in the Catholic world, obviously a practicing Catholic, You've put yourself out here in a big way, uh, but before we get into all that, I want to just give us, for our readers or viewers, some of your background. Who is Ed Maza, and um, what are you doing now? I am a professor of history. I taught for 14 years at Azusa Pacific University here in Southern California, which, is, which was actually an evangelical school, but uh, they were quite tolerant of, of an uppity Catholic, traditional Catholic. Um, and I'm originally from New York. Uh, I have a book with Angelico Press entitled The Scholastics and the Jews, which is basically uh, a book about St. Raymond of Penafort, sort of the father of canon law uh, and one of the successors of St. Dominic and his uh, traditional dialogue and approach to non-Catholics. Uh, so um, I, I've studied... Uh, outreaches to other religions, but in a traditional way, and also canon law. And at the moment, I uh, I am teaching online courses. For example, uh, starting on Mercy Sunday, I'm offering a, a mini course uh, four Sundays on Saint Augustine's Guide to Sanctity During Societal Collapse. So, if the folks go to edmondmaza.com, they can check that out. I'm also doing a course this spring on the history of the church from 1966 to 2016. Basically, nothing happened during that time. <laughs> nothing at all. No. Very, very apropos for our times. So, so tell me, I mean, yours is a background steeped in faith, in academia. Um, and yet, what you've proposed has, I'm sure, gotten you a lot of flack. It has. And, and of course, I want to stress that uh, I, I, I may not be able to tell people who the Pope is because after all, I'm not a biologist, um, but uh, <laughs> but I, I I do have the the Maza hypothesis, and as a layperson, I would never have ventured into this territory if it weren't for good pastors who kind of pointed me in that direction. Uh, I'll just name a few names. Um, in the fall of 2018, Monsignor Nicola Bux, it's spelled B-U-X, uh, a friend of Ratzinger. Uh, a member of the Curia, a priest for 50 years, he came out and said uh, in an interview uh, with, I believe, Aldo Maria Valli in October of 2018, and they were discussing this terrible situation in the church under Francis. And Monsignor Books said, I think we need to do an investigation of Benedict's resignation. So being a, a scholar, uh, I decided to stick my nose into it. Also, I must say, I consider myself to be a spiritual son of the late, great Father Nicholas Gruner. Uh, it's going to be seven years now this month, next week, since we lost him. And I still remember in the late 1980s in high school, my mother gave me a copy of the Fatima Crusader. And uh, so I've been following the message of Our Lady of Fatima ever since. And uh, I think uh, Father Gruner was right when he said that the, the full third secret was not revealed. That the consecration of Our Lady, uh, consecration of Russia to Our Lady, had not yet happened, has not yet happened, 
and now I don't know that many people know this, but there's a video out there. I can give you the link of Father Gruner in the fall of 2014. That's pretty early. <laughs> fall of 2014, telling people that because Pope Benedict did not specifically renounce his munis, uh, therefore he didn't renounce the papacy at all. And uh, wherever he went, like for example, he went to Ireland in for St. Patrick's Day, 2015. Everybody he met, he said, look, this is Father Gruner talking. Francis is not the Pope. Uh, and Pope Benedict is still the Pope. And now, let's, as you uh, say... Let's just watch a little clip of that right now, sure. and then I'm going to get your take on it. He says, very clearly, and you can read it for yourself, Benedict in his resignation says, I am not resigning the munus, M-U-N-U-S. That means in Latin, it's the, the office. Yet canon law, I think it's 332, if I got it correct, I can find it for you. If I don't have it here, I most likely don't, I can send it to you. 332, which says, if a pope were to resign, he must resign the munis. So here you have canon law saying, to resign, you must resign the munis. And here you have Pope Benedict saying, I'm not resigning the munis. Now to me, that's a principle that there's a contradiction here. If you're resigning, you have to resign the munis, but he's saying, I'm not resigning the munis. So whatever he's doing, he wasn't resigning the papacy. And so as you, as you saw in that clip, uh, Father Gruner was analyzing the, the text of his renunciation, uh, Pope Benedict's Declaratio, which he issued on February 11th, uh, 2013. And so, uh, of course, during our chat here, I'll, I'll go through a little bit of that to try to un un unpack it for the folks. Uh, and uh, explain why why it's quite likely that the, the resignation was invalid. Well, absolutely. Here's actually a little clip of the somewhat filmed um, an announcement by Pope Benedict and uh, reaction from some of the cardinals. Let's have a look at that. At conditionem certam perveni virus mias in gravescente etate non iam aptas esset monus petrinum eque administrandum. Bene concessum hoc monus secundum suem essentiam spiritualem non solum accendo et loquendo exequitibere, sed non minus paziendo et orando. Attamen in mundo nostri temporis rapidis mutationibus subiecto et questionibus mani ponderis pro vita fide perturbato, at navem sancti pete gubernandam et annunciandam evangelium etiam vigor quidam corporis et anime necessarius est, que ultimis mensibus in me modo tale minuitur ut incapacitatem iam ad ministerum ecomissum bene administrandum anios redibiam. Qua propta bene consius pondes huius actus plena libertate declaro, me ministerio episcopi Rome, successori sancti peti, mi permanos cardinalium, dion divicissima prilis bis millesimo quinto commissum, renunciare ita da die vicesimo octavo febbraio bis millesimo tredicesimo ora vicesima, sedes Rome, sedes sancti peti, vacet et conclave ad elicendum novum sum pontificem, ab hisquibus competit convocandum esse. So, Ed, if you can unpack for us what happened, what was said, and what do you make of it? Yes, let's start with the what, because uh, on my side of the fence, there's a, a bunch of people that have different theories as to the why, mm -hmm. and I'll give you my uh, best take on that as well. But in terms of the what, um, people don't know this, but the Holy Father, the Roman pontiff, whatever power he possesses, he possesses in virtue of his office. This is what the First Vatican Council in 1870 teaches, and it's what canon law teaches in Canon 332 under the 1983 Code of Canon Law, which governs the church today. And in Canon 332.2, it says, if it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, it is required for validity that the resignation is made freely and properly manifested. So what do we see there? There are three things. 
the first thing is that it, it, a papal resignation, as rare as it is, it could be invalid if he doesn't renounce his office. His and the word in Latin uh, is muniri in in the text, which is in in the original, it's munus. And this is the so, text of the canon law. Is that right? Exactly, Canon three thirty two point two. Again, I can give you the text, uh, and it, again, it says if it happens that the Roman Pontiff resigns his munis, it's required for validity, meaning it's possible for it not to be valid, if it's not made freely or if it's not properly manifested. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think on all three counts there are there is ambiguity and 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 problems, and so we can uh, we can unpack that if you'd like. Yeah, let's let's start. Um, let's wherever you wish to start from. I think we're going to save the why for later, and so we're really going to be looking at those two other parts. Excellent, excellent. So um, let me read from uh, Pope Benedict's uh, Declaratio, and I'll just read a few phrases here. Uh, he says, "Beni conscious sum hoc munus." Secundum suam essentiam spiritualem. Now, what he just said there is that he's he's very well aware that the munus of the pape of the Roman Pontiff has is essentially a spiritual nature. And then he says, non solum agendo et loquendo, exque debere sed non minus paciendo et orando. In other words, uh, he's aware that this munis uh, has an active element, words and deeds, but no less, it has a passive element of suffering and prayer. And then, towards the end of his Declaratio, he says, uh, Incapacitatum meam ad ministerium mihi comissum beni administrandum agnoscere debeam, uh, he's recognizing his incapacity to keep doing this active ministry of, of words and deeds. And so he says, declaro me ministerio episcopi Romae, successoris sancti petri. And then a, a little later, he says, renunciare. So what he did there is he did something odd. He switched from using the expression munus petrum, which he repeated again and again. Which means what? Uh, it means the office of Peter. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and then he changed that at the end, you know, the, the money line in his declaratio is the renunciation. Mm -hmm. And what he actually renounces is the ministerio episcopi Romae, the mm -hmm. ministry of the Bishop of Rome. So we have to ask ourselves, uh, why did he replace Munus with ministerium? And why did he replace you know, Petr Petronum with uh, Episcopi Romae? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, you know, why change the, the way he was narrating things? Uh, and I think there are, what he was essentially doing in that declaratio uh, is that he, at the beginning of the declaratio, he says, this munis is carried out in an active way through words and deeds, and he's clearly not up for that anymore, but it's also carried out by suffering and prayer. Well, he can still do the suffering and the prayer, so he hasn't renounced completely that munis. That office, see? yeah. That office. But that's a problem, because that's mm -hmm. the one little thing you have to do <laughs> to resign from the papacy. It's not that difficult. According it's like to canon law. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He has to resign uh, the office. And so we don't have that in the key phrase of the Declaratio. Now, um, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we have to understand uh, Pope Benedict's use of the word munis in his Declaratio with a whole controversy, uh, John Henry, that's been going on uh, for the last 60 years since Vatican II. In my research, what I've uncovered is that many traditional Catholics are aware of, obviously, uh, the problems with the new mass, the, the problems of the conciliar church with regard to the reception of Holy Communion, the problems of the conciliar church 
with regards to uh, bishops' conferences and the teaching on human sexuality. Well, I was surprised to learn that there's another crisis in the church, which most people are not aware of. You know, have, fighting a war on so many fronts, it's understandable that we not, we're not going to be aware of everything. But there's actually a crisis in ecclesiology. Now, that's a fancy word for the church's theology of, of church. Uh, and um, I, I can share a couple of quotes with you, if you'd like, uh, from some professors regarding this, this un, unknown or not widely known crisis in the, the, the ecclesiology of the church, which actually, it seems, like everything else in the post-Vatican II world, has impacted maybe even the, the legitimacy of uh, uh, Papa Ratzinger's uh, renunciation. Uh, so let me give you a quote. This quote is from Bishop Arietta, who is the secretary of the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts, and he's also a professor of canon law. And he talks about, in an article from 1995, you know, over 25 years ago, he says, problems have arisen since the council with regard to the public function and the notion of office are particularly reflected in the fluctuating use of notions such as munis, ministry, and office, both in doctrine and in the official texts of the church. And Arietta's remarks are echoed by another professor. Her name is Anna Slawakowska. Hope I'm not butchering the Polish there. She's from the John Paul II Catholic University of Lublin. And in her article, she says, the, the purpose of this article, this is from 2015, is the interpretation of the notion of munis in the constitution Lumen Gentium, right, from Vatican II. And listen to what she says. The Latin noun munis is an ambiguous word, full stop. Mm. <laughs> and she says, in the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, this word is presented up to 255 times. And she goes through the various meanings of it. It could mean office, it could mean function, it could mean service, it could mean ministry. And she says, she concludes, in many places, the translation of the Constitution from the Latin language into the Polish language, both in 1968 and in 2002, are different. And she says this, hmm. can, this can cause not only problems of interpretation, but also doctrinal problems. And so this is what I bring up to many people who say, well, ministerium, it means, if you look it up in a Lewis and Short diction, Latin dictionary, it means the same thing as uh, as munis. Uh, and according to the uh, experts in canon law, that's not necessarily so. In fact, if you'll indulge me a minute longer here, this is what um, Slawakowska has to say. The term munis is most often analyzed in the literature with two others, officium and ministerium. And she says this, they are also synonymous with it, but at the same time, each of them can mean something different. And this is the, the key phrase in her statement. Their use, whether separate or synonymous, always depends on the context of the utterance, the author's intention, or the purpose for which they are used. Hmm. Okay. So if you want to know the author's intention, I would suggest that in addition to the uh, declaratio of the Holy Father, that we also turn to his last general audience mm -hmm. uh, before he um, left the scene, as it were. I could go into that if you'd like. If you can, please, because here is where um, you, you will have some of the most contention. It, it seemed clear from declarations of, of Pope Benedict that that he was resigning somehow from the papacy. Um, and so this is the big, you know, counter argument, I guess you'd say, um, you know, of, of people who say, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's said over and over again that, no, this he's resigned. So what's what's the big contention here? So my answer to the people who say that is that, you know, there are 
John Henry, there are tens of thousands, maybe millions of, of couples in America and throughout the world who will swear up and down that they're married. Uh, but uh, it may be that there's a situation that uh, was an impediment, and therefore they're not really married in the eyes of God, despite all their protestations. In other words, if you don't, as I, this, we're obviously not going to be able to go through all the conditions for a proper marriage, but there are conditions, and if those conditions are not met, then they're not really married in the eyes of God. It's the same thing with resigning the office of the papacy. In, uh, in canon law, there's a term called substantial error. And substantial error normally comes up in, in marriage cases um, because marriage is something that you have to enter into freely. And if you don't, then it's not a marriage. That's one of, one of the conditions. Um, well, believe it or not, canon law, canon 188, says that when someone in the church resigns from their office, one of the things that would invalidate that resignation is something called substantial error. Uh, it's when your intellect has an erroneous idea of the object that you're choosing, that your will is choosing. Well, if your intellect presents an erroneous object to your will and your will chooses it, your will is not free. I'll give you a quick example, and then if you'd like, we can jump into um, Benedict's uh, last audience um, an example that we could give is this. Uh, let's say there's a man and he will only marry, he stipulates, I will only marry an imperial uh, Romanov princess, right? A, a daughter or granddaughter of the last czar of Russia, Nicholas II. And so he's very happy because he meets a, a girl named uh, Natasha Romanova and he marries her. But guess what? Uh, she's not really a, a, an imperial Romanov daughter or granddaughter. Uh, she's actually uh, from uh, you know, the Marvel Comics uh, Avengers, <laughs> right? That would be called substantial error because his intellect presented him with an object which he freely chose, but he didn't actually freely choose it because his intellect gave him an erroneous idea of it. How do I apply this to Benedict? It's very simple. If Benedict thought he could resign the active ministry of the papacy, but somehow still remain papal and was able to offer up his sufferings and prayers uh, in, in an ontological connection to the munis that belongs to St. Peter. In other words, still as pope. Still as pope in the passive sense, not in mm -hmm. the... Uh, um, not in the active sense, you see. Right, so he, he believed in some kind of bifurcation of the papacy. It, it's a bifurcation. See, this is where we get into the post-Vatican II uh, problems, problematic theology or problematic ecclesiology. Uh, and <laughs> I, there have been books and, and articles, and uh, I, could, I can rattle off names, uh, but I, I don't want to confuse the folks since this is probably the first time they've, they've been introduced to this. So I'm going to try and break this down and make it real simple. Uh, but maybe the best way to, to, to branch into that, to launch into that, is to read briefly from uh, his last general audience, St. Peter's Square, uh, the 27th of February, 2013. And this is what he says. I, I won't read the – I have the Italian in front of me, and I have the English in front of me. I'll just stick with the English for the moment. And what he did was the Holy Father was speaking about the anniversary we just celebrated last week. His uh, – you know, April 19th was the 17th anniversary of his uh, election to the papacy. And so in his uh, last Wednesday audience, he was reflecting back on April 19th, 2005, when he accepted – being the Roman pontiff. And this is what he says. He says, the always is also a forever. Like, in other words, once he committed himself to, to becoming Pope, it was a forever. He says, quote, there's no longer a return to the private. And this is the key phrase. My decision to renounce the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. Does not revoke what? 
his papal commitment, and I'm going to unpack that in the rest of our segment together, but let me just finish with his statement. He says, my decision to renounce the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. Notice he qualifies what he is renouncing. He didn't say, I'm renouncing the moonus. He can't because he still wants to do the passive exercise of the ministry, namely the prayer and the suffering. But that's connected to the moonus, to this ontological principle. Um, so he says, I do not return to private life, to a life of travel, meetings, receptions. I do not abandon the cross, but it remain in a new way with the crucified Lord. Now, that's very interesting, because in 1977, uh, he gave a speech in honor of Pope Paul VI, his, his 80th birthday, in which he repeatedly referred to the papacy as a cross. And here in, in 2013, we have Ratzinger saying, I don't abandon the cross. And he goes on to say, I no longer carry the power of the office for the government of the church. In other words, the active administration of the church. But in the service of prayer, I remain, so to speak, in the precincts of St. Peter. And then he finishes by saying, St. Benedict, whose name I bear as Pope, will be a great example to me in this. He has shown us the way to a life which, active or passive, belongs totally to the work of God. So take us through there, if you would. Where, uh, where does that leave us with regard to Benedict, um, Pope, not Pope? Okay. Well, let me inflict one more uh, quote on you because I think this 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 is what really it got my spider sense tingling okay mm -hmm. um, Pope Benedict has given interviews to his old friend and the journalist Peter Sewald mm -hmm. and one of those interviews was a, a full-length book it's called Benedict the 16th last Testament and that came out he did the interview in 2016 it was published in 2017 and Peter Sewald puts it puts it he basically throws the Holy Father's words from his Declaratio right back at him and says the following, is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter. And Benedict answers and says, one can make that accusation, but it would be a functional misunderstanding. Misunderstanding accusation of Seawald is only is only repeating to him what Benedict said in his declaratio right mm -hmm. it's it's a yes or no answer <laughs> but Benedict does not give a yes or no answer to the question instead he says the successor of Peter is not merely bound to a function the office enters into your very being in this regard, fulfilling a function is not the only criterion. Well, this is what really got me interested in this question. Uh, and so I researched, I've, I've you know, I, 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 I'm beginning to dream in German. I've been going through so much of uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger's works, and I think I'm beginning to suffer from Stockholm syndrome. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to start talking like Rahner and uh, these other uh, Nouvelle theologians, if you know what I mean. Oh boy. <laughs> but uh, but let me explain what he means by, or I'll try to explain what he means by functional uh, misunderstanding. Uh, see, Benedict characterizes Seawold's question as a functional misunderstanding. This idea that, uh, well, let me just put it this way. Um, it's as if he's correcting Seawold for suggesting that Seawold has missed the transcendent component of of. Uh, of the Petrine Munis, of the office. The office enters into your very being. When Seawold somehow suggested that whenever Ratzinger is not actively leading the church, he's no longer papal. But Benedict corrects him and says, the office enters into your very being. It's ontological. It's an always and a forever. Now, this is interesting because I found a quote, I found more than one quote, from Ratzinger, where he explains 
the difference between something that's ontological and something that's functional. For example, Benedict once criticized Martin Luther precisely for misunderstanding the difference between munis as jurisdiction or function and munis as right or sacrament. For example, Benedict says, for Luther, the priest does not transcend his role as preacher. The consequent restriction to the word alone had as its logical outcome the pure functionality of the priesthood. In other words, for Luther, the priesthood consisted exclusively in a particular activity. And if that activity was missing, the ministry itself ceased to exist. So there was purposely no further mention of priesthood, but only of office. The assignment of this office was in itself a secular act. What Benedict is, is trying to say here is that uh, I believe the, the way to understand his declaratio, his words at his last general audience, and his words to Seawalt is that he's, he's still papal even when he's not doing the, the active component or the functional component of what's traditionally understood to be the papacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To, to be fair, um, I think there are a lot of indications that, that make things very confusing. Benedict still wears white, the, the papal colors. In fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the book, he's asked, why are you still wearing white? And there seems to be some really lame excuse over there, there wasn't a cassock available for me. Yeah, there are no black cassocks available in Rome. Did you know that, John Henry? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. That's um, obviously for people who might never have been in Rome, that might make them scratch their heads. But for anybody who has been in Rome, eh, that's very laughable because every corner you pass has some store full of soutans. So it's um, very strange indeed. Another one of those things, um, he's still referred to as the Holy Father. He, in fact, still signs with a papal signature. Um, in fact, Pope Francis refers to Pope Benedict as the Holy Father. Um, very, very odd indeed. So, and he hasn't left the walls of the Vatican. He, he, he stays in the, in the confines of the Vatican, as it were. So, very strange indeed. But continue, if you would. Yes, well, you see, and, and you forgot to mention, he also gives apostolic blessings can you give apostolic blessings, John Henry? Can I? <laughs> That's reserved to the Pope alone. So what's going on here? Um, and what it is is, is again, um, Ratzinger has published many times his, uh, his view, his ecclesiology. Uh, maybe the best way of putting this is, is to explain it this way. Among the innovations of Vatican II, one of the major innovations – was when Vatican II said that bishops, <clears throat> when they are consecrated, when they receive the sacrament of ordination, not only do they receive the power to you know, confect the sacraments for the faithful, which the church always taught, but Vatican II said something different, said something new. They said that bishops, when they get consecrated, they also receive through the sacrament the power to teach and to govern. Now, for 800 years, that was thought to be something that is given to the bishop from the Holy Father. In other words, it's something called missio canonica or canonical mission. And it's a grant of jurisdiction, which gives you the power to, to govern. Now, um, so uh, Benedict, in a book that was published the year after the council, it's called Theological Insights of Vatican II. In that, in that book, uh, uh, Benedict Joseph Ratzinger goes to great lengths to explain that um, the council has moved past this medieval concept where there is an office given to you whereby you can govern the church which is a separate power from the 
from the power that's given to you when you're made a bishop, you see. Um, what Ratzinger, and his and he's not alone in this. In fact, maybe the best way of explaining this, if you don't mind, I'll quote uh, a friend of both of ours, uh, Dr. Roberto D. Matei, who actually has taken issue with Ratzinger on this, and I think he explains it better than I can. Roberto Di Mattei says, Vatican Council II did not explicitly reject the traditional concept of power, potestas. But what they did was they used different language. They set it aside, replacing it with an equivocal new concept, that of munus. He says, Article 21 of Lumen Gentium then seems to teach that Episcopal consecration confers not only the fullness of orders, but also the office of teaching and the office of governing. Whereas in the whole history of the church, the act of Episcopal consecration has been distinguished from that of appointment or of the conferral of the canonical mission. This ambiguity is consistent with the ecclesiology of the theologians of the council and post-council, and, and Dimatei names them. Kanyar, Ratzinger, Delubach, Balthasar, Rahner, Schillebex, who presumed to reduce the mission of the church to a sacramental function and scaling down its juridical aspects. And he finishes by saying this, Ratzinger, distanced himself from tradition when he saw in the primacy of Peter the fullness of the apostolic ministry linking the ministerial character to the sacramental. So let me put that in plain English. There's a school of thought in the Catholic Church which says that it's not the um, election of the pope that gives him, or his acceptance of the election, that gives him his power. It is by virtue of the fact that he is consecrated a bishop. Because a layman, canon law, in fact, says, if someone is a layman, or a priest, or a deacon, and he's elected pope, he must immediately be consecrated a bishop. Um, now, so there's this rift in the church between those who say that uh, the, the pope gets his power by episcopal consecration and those who say, no, he doesn't. But if Ratzinger is truly among those who say that the pope gets it from episcopal consecration, well, as Professor uh, Girlanda, the former head of the Gregorian University, points out, if he got it through episcopal consecration, he can never lose it because what we receive through a sacrament we never lose, you see? So that would explain, that would make perfect sense why he still wears white, still lives in the Vatican, still gives apostolic blessings, um, why his, his own companion, uh, Archbishop Georg Ganswein, in, in a speech at the Greg in May 2016, said that Benedict, both before and after his resignation, still considers himself as participating in the Petrine Munis. He has not at all abandoned the office of Peter. What he has done is he, he has courageously renewed it. Mm -hmm. And those are, but, by the way, I think those are direct quotes from Archbishop Genswein, are they not? They, they are, and, and this mm -hmm. is the problem. What if Ratzinger's ecclesiology is wrong? <laughs> I mean, the, the post-conciliar church couldn't get the, the mass right. They, they can't seem to get the reception of Holy Communion right. They, they can't seem to get a, a whole host of things right. Uh, we're supposed to believe that they, that they managed somehow to get papal resignations correct <laughs> or, the, or the theology of the church correct. Um, again, as, as Dimatei points out and others have pointed out, this is a new way, a novel way of looking at, at, at the at bishops and their power, and if, if you can't, in other words, if, this is what I'm arguing, this is the Maza hypothesis, if Joseph Ratzinger thought that he could somehow um, leave the active uh, governance of the church, the active ministry, 
but still participate ontologically in the munis, uh, if he could still hold on to some aspect of the papacy, then he didn't really renounce the papacy. Because if you're going to renounce the papacy, traditionally speaking, you have to renounce the whole thing. It's like that old Frank Sinatra song, all or, or nothing at all, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting, especially in light of his predecessor as well, because here he is talking about his incapacity to do the functions, uh, the active ministry, if you will. Yet his own predecessor, we all watched, those of us who are, let's say, um, you know, older than 35, still remember John Paul II, especially in his last years, where you could arguably say he could not function. In, in terms of an active ministry. Uh, we remember him for years shaking with Parkinson's for, for being able barely to stand. I, I remember uh, when he was in Toronto uh, in the early 90s, you know, lifting up our Lord in, in Holy Communion uh, in front of all the people, but he was hunched over so much he could barely move. It was such a moving portrayal of suffering and yet continuing in this office until his death. Like every father, it, you, you're, you don't renounce your family because you're, you're too old. You, you struggle and continue unto death into it. When uh, Pope John Paul II was um, in Toronto, there's a famous um, exchange with Conrad Black. He apparently visited his house, and Black asked about that, just that, hey, what about you know retiring? And John Paul II famously responded, there is no such thing as a Pope Emeritus. And yet, here we have this situation from uh, John Paul II's successor, who's basically done this, made a so-called uh, Pope Emeritus. But at the same time, as you're pointing out, his intention wasn't fully that. It wasn't to renounce it fully because he sees that that can't be done fully, or at least in, in his thought, it can't be done fully. And so yeah, they, he couldn't have done it. it as you were saying about... Uh, what his intent actually was, and what does that mean for the resignation that was? Yes, if um, you know, actions speak louder than words. The, the fact that he chose to be uh, Pope Emeritus of Rome, that he wears white, that he gives apostolic blessings, that corroborates, you know, this external evidence corroborates our reading of his declaratio, uh, of his statement at the last Wednesday audience. Uh, his answers to, to Seawold, uh, his, this, his statements that he's made about ecclesiology over the last 60 years. But I'll, I'll add this. Um, uh, this innovation of a, of a Pope Emeritus, you know, it's one thing to be a Bishop Emeritus. They, they didn't exist until after Vatican II. But the idea with a Bishop Emeritus is that he no longer has the active governance of a diocese. Uh, so he's emeritus, but he's still a bishop, uh, and so he's bishop emeritus. But in the case of a holy father who retires, um, he can't be uh, – uh, if, if, he, if he gives up the active exercise, you could say he's emeritus, but then he would still be pope, <laughs> as it were. Uh, he's not – or another way of putting this is um, – because I, I, I did some deep research into this uh, two years ago after I was on the Dr. Taylor Marshall show, I had read that there's a theological opinion that uh, perhaps a pope, for a very grave reason, could separate the office of vicar of Christ from the bishop of Rome. Because, of course, Peter was the bishop of Antioch and still was the pope before he was bishop of Rome. In fact, he was still the vicar of Christ even before he was the bishop of Antioch. Um, and and according to Vatican I, they decided not to solve the issue. And so it is legitimate, although it's a minority opinion among the theologians, that a, um, a Holy Father under grave circumstances could um, separate the office of Vicar of Christ from the Diocese of Rome, from the Episcopacy of Rome. But let me play devil's advocate. Let, let's say that the majority of theologians are correct, and you cannot separate them, that uh, – what would that entail? Well, if being vicar of Christ is inseparable from being the bishop of Rome, if you become bishop emeritus of Rome, what would you automatically become? 
well, you'd become you'd become not only bishop emeritus, you'd become vicar of Christ emeritus. Doesn't that logically follow? If being vicar of if being the bishop of Rome automatically makes you vicar of Christ, and the two are in, indissoluble, then if you claim to be the bishop emeritus of Rome, you must simultaneously be claiming to be the vicar of Christ emeritus. What the heck is a is a, a vicar of Christ emeritus? That would mean that somehow uh, the current occupant of the chair and and uh, uh, Ratzinger would somehow be sharing in the spiritual office of the vicar of Christ. And actually, the church has come out and declared that to be heterodoxy. Back at the time of the um, uh, Jansenist crisis in the 1600s, the, the pope came out with a statement, a, a magisterial statement, saying that you can't have more than one person sharing in the power of the vicar of Christ, of the papacy. Um, so again, um, the very fact that he's come up with this novel thing, Pope Emeritus, um, uh, if that doesn't jive with the actual ontological reality of the church, as I explained, how can you be Pope Emeritus and not simultaneously be claiming to be vicar of Christ Emeritus? And we, the church has already condemned that notion then again, it, it points to a substantial error in his mind when he resigned, in the object that he chose. That would mean that his will was not free. So if we go back to Canon 332.2, what are the three things that can invalidate a papal resignation? One, if he doesn't renounce the munis. Well, you can read the Declaratio. He never actually renounced the munis. Two, what can also uh, invalidate a... Uh, papal resignation, if it's not manifested properly. Well, there's so much confusion over the language, and we have scholars testifying to that uh, about munis and office and ministerium, and there's so much ambiguity in his, in his statement and in his uh, further you know, clarifications on the subject that I, I think it's arguable that his resignation was not manifested properly. And what's the third thing that, that can invalidate uh, a papal resignation? if it was not done freely. Now, when people hear that, they think, well, ah, somebody has to put a gun to somebody's head and then they're not free. That's not what I'm suggesting. Although I think we should look into the Communist Party of China and other aspects, the pressures that were put on Benedict. As you remember, there were tremendous pressures being put on Benedict at that time. I wouldn't want to rule out the possibility of some heavy handedness between the New World Order and the communists with regard to, and the traitors in the church with, with regard to the resignation of Benedict. But putting all that aside, as I say, the, the Canon 188 says that a resignation due to substantial error is automatically invalid by the law itself. And so if he had a messed up notion, an erroneous notion of what he was renouncing or half renouncing or whatever, his will was not free. And so I, I, I think the, uh, the, the, three, the three possibilities for invalidation are, are there. And that's why I think Archbishop Vigano is right to say, look, before the next conclave, we've got to get this straight. We have, we have to have an objective investigation of this. Mm -hmm. One question before we get to the why, because I do want to hit that right before we end. This question comes actually from Professor DeMatte, who you quoted before. As you know, we've, we go quite, quite back quite a ways. One of the things he mentioned to me was, well, if Ratzinger had such a distorted view of the papacy and his resignation is perhaps invalid because of that, would his own acceptance of the papacy way back in 2005 also be affected by that same having it wrong in the first place? That, that's an excellent question. Uh, that uh, now, on the surface of it, you know, people who think Benedict is still the Pope or is likely still the Pope, they they take a question like that, and it sounds like the question, "Are you still beating your wife?" <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll venture an answer, and the answer is pretty simple. When Benedict accepted the papacy, he didn't reserve anything. He didn't put anything. He didn't add any technicalities or qualifications or reservations to it. He just simply accepted it. Therefore, that's fine. That that's that's fine and dandy. The problem is that if you want to resign the papacy, you know, it's kind of like President Nixon. Uh, in one sentence, he resigned the office of the presidency of the United States. 
He said, I hereby renounce the office of the presidency of the United States. If Benedict had done that, there'd be nothing for you and me to talk about. But um, so uh, the problem is when you uh, when your intellect has an idea of the papacy that you can somehow renounce the active part of it, but still ontologically, metaphysically, you know, participate in the Platonic form of Pope with a capital P, you know, mystically. Um, if, you, if that's your if that's your thought pattern. And you choose that, then your will is not really free if it chooses something that's erroneous. Um, and, and so, for instance, had he just said simply, like President Nixon did, I resign the office of the papacy, that would be done whether or not he thought differently about it. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I, off the top of my head, I would say it's kind of like when you, um, when the minister gives the Eucharist or when the priest does baptism. Or even when a Protestant gives somebody baptism, the church says um, that if, as long as he intends to do what the church intends to do, uh, it, it's valid as long as he uses the right words. And it doesn't really matter if he has his theology completely together. Um, so I would say is that if Benedict just used the right words, I mean, Canon 332.2 says if the Roman pontiff renounces his munis, uh, it has to be free, and it has to be properly manifested. And if he had, if he had done that in, in, in word and in deed, we wouldn't be having this, um, this discussion right now. Amazing stuff. Very confusing. Uh, <laughs> but boy, what a change this would bring. I mean, it, it, would it, if in fact his resignation was deemed invalid uh, by an investigation in the church as Archbishop Vigano has called for, and I think other bishops uh, would support, some other bishops, of course, not by no means am I saying the majority of so, but what would that then mean for the church today? Would it basically invalidate all of Pope Francis's actions as Pope? Well, people are divided on that. You know, my take is that there uh, is that, you know, certainly all these heretical documents, at least materially heretical like uh, Abu Dhabi, that God wills the plurality of religions. Uh, all these uh, terrible encyclicals and post-apostolic exhortations like Amoris Laetitia, uh, which seems to say that uh, people that are divorced and remarried uh, can receive Holy Communion, even though they're in an ob objective state of grave sin. Or even, it, it, it says worse than that. It says there are times when people have to sin, so to speak. Uh, but anyway... Um, I think those would automatically be wiped away. But in terms of church appointments, uh, there is something called ecclesia sublet, or um, a, a jurisdiction that the heaven supplies, supplied jurisdiction uh, for when um, for a situation like this. Um, and another thing I wanted to add to, to that to your question there about. Um, uh, what what if Bergoglio is an antipope? Um, people often accuse me of and others of you know trying to provoke schism, and obviously that's the last thing I want to do. And I'm only following what Father Gruner basically told me to do, and and, and Monsignor Books, and and now Archbishop Vigano. But um, Saint Cajetan, in his commentary on the Summa, he says the following: If someone for a reasonable motive holds the person of the Pope in suspicion and refuses his presence and even his jurisdiction, he does not commit the delict of schism, nor any other whatsoever, provided that he be ready to accept the Pope were he not held in suspicion. Um, and then uh, another quote I could share with you is from, uh, you know, before Vatican II, the most respected commentary on canon law was the eight-volume set by Francis Xavier Werner and Peter Vidal. And they wrote, they cannot be numbered among the schismatics who refuse to obey the Roman pontiff because they consider his person to be suspect or doubtfully elected on account of rumors in circulation. Just rumors in circulation. So I, I want to make that clear, that I, I don't endorse schism, nor, nor do I want to promote that. And from what I can read, 
it seems that I'm not doing that or, or, you know, by, by, and I don't think that Archbishop Vigano would be encouraging that or Father Gruner, or, you know, I want to add Father Paul Kramer recently came out with a book uh, about um, Pope Benedict's resignation and about Jorge Bergoglio. Uh, I believe it's called On the True and False Pope that just came out in November of last year. And also, I don't know if you're familiar with um, a Dr. Rydaili, who was a, a student of Romano Amerio and from the, uh, the, the book Iota Unum. He just came out with a book. It's in English and in Italian. Uh, at the heart of Ratzinger, he is the Pope, not the other. So very, very bright people uh, are, are looking into this for the good of the church. And mm, so- Absolutely. Um, and yeah. I know Professor Rodelli. Uh, and, you know, not only very bright people, people have to understand these are very, very faithful Catholics. The kind of Catholic who would want to give his life for the faith, ready to- you know, offer up everything, and they are offering up already, as are you. Uh, very much of your reputation, putting yourself in the line of fire, uh, by high-ranking churchmen, by by those you might love and respect in the faith as well. So, very challenging things to do. Well, I, I couldn't Before suffer we... worse than uh, if you don't mean. It, um, sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you there, John Henry. I couldn't suffer worse than Ed Penton. You remember a few years back, uh, Cardinal Maradiaga called him a mafioso. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. But before we close, I wanted to get to your why. What ah. do you think? Why do you think uh, Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, did what he did? Well, again, th there are different takes on this. Some people mm -hmm. think that um, he did it deliberately because he foresaw what was coming uh, and um, wanted to. Um, make sure that whoever succeeded him, if he was going to be a modernist, all his work would, would amount to nothing, you know, legitimately. Um, other people like myself think that uh, he committed some kind of substantial error or had some erroneous theology that, uh, in a sense, fortuitously um, saved us from Bergoglio being a legitimate pope uh, and by Ratzinger still being the, the pope. Um, so th there are various theories about this, but I, I think the, the my 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 bet is and my research is is that it was more um, his you know post conciliar ideas, his nouvelle theologie that gave him this idea that you could still be papal without actually administering and governing the, the church. And um, if I could throw in here the, the testimony of um, I know you're familiar with the work of uh, Malachi Martin. In his, uh, in his book that he wrote 30 years ago, The Keys of This Blood, uh, he said something interesting. And of course, whenever we hear Father Malachi Martin's name, our ears have to perk up because he claimed to have read The Third Secret. Uh, and in his books, although he could not actually come out and state The Third Secret, uh, he often mixed in parts of The Secret between fact and fiction, uh, especially in his fiction works, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is from the, one of the last chapters of The Keys of This Blood, Father Malachi Martin says the following. He says, there are three dreadful outcomes that are possible um, after John Paul the Great you know, leaves the scene in the future. And he says, the first possible outcome is the day when, quote, a sizable body of clergy and laity become convinced, rightly or wrongly, that the then occupant of the apostolic throne of Peter is not, perhaps never was, a validly elected pope. And that kind of scares me because maybe that's in the third secret. In fact, Father Malachi Martin, when he addressed an audience in Detroit, Michigan in 1989, he said, quote, we're facing what we may have to face, finally, the false pope. Um, hmm. And of course, there's the uh, Peter Sewald, in one of his interviews with Pope Benedict, talks to him about the prophecy of Malachi, because according to the prophecy of Malachi, uh, the the glory of the olive is is the Pope that Pope Ratzinger would would represent, and mm -hmm. then after him is supposed to be a terrible time of tribulation and perhaps even an anti-Pope until Peter the Roman comes and uh, sets things straight. And um, so Peter Sewald says to uh, Papa Benedetto. 
is it possible that you are the last pope or at least the last pope of, of a certain era? And <laughs> Benedict says, yes, anything could happen. Any, it could be true. <laughs> so um, th there's a lot of things that need to be investigated is the way I would put it. Yeah, that that prophecy of uh, St. Malachi is, is very fascinating. In fact, um, I remember way back in the in the 90s still being in the church of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome. And at the time, they had the images of the popes all along the uh, ceiling, just, just below the ceiling, actually. And it sort of lined the whole church all the way around. You could watch it. And after JP2's image, there was only space for two more. Um, and so it was based on, on the um, prophecies of St. Malachi. And um, when I went back later, um, after the election of Benedict, and, and uh, actually it was right after Francis' election, I noticed that they had made a second row and moved them all around, so now there's room for lots and lots more. But it was still fascinating that after JP2, there was only two spots left, one, of course, taken by Ratzinger, and then after that, just one more. And it's Peter the Roman, of course, in terms of Catholic prophecy. But uh, I always found that stunning and um, wondered what, uh, what it meant. But... This is truly a fascinating time in the church. You've been um, selected in a way or called to to do something really unique here in bringing out this thesis, uh, even though it, I know, has has cost you a lot. Um, God bless you for what you're doing. And Thank you, uh, let's see how, uh, how God works uh, to bring clarity to our current mess. God's will, it's in Our Lady's hands, Our Lord's hands, and we, we work and pray for the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Mazza, for being with us. Thank you, John. God bless all of you, and we'll see you next time.